This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 91. My guest this week is Jasmine Darsnick, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Good Daughter, a memoir of my mother's hidden life. This book tells the story of her mother's first marriage in Iran at the age of 13, the forced surrender of her child and the long shadow cast by those events. Jasmine was born in Tehran in Iran and came to America when she was five years old. Among the few cherished items the family was able to bring with them was a book of poems by Farouk Farakzad, Iran's trailblazing woman poet. Jasmine's debut novel, Song of a Captive Bird, is a fictional account of Farouk's life and was published this month. Her essays have appeared in numerous periodicals, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and LA Times. She holds an MFA in fiction from Bennington and a PhD in English from Princeton. She's now a professor of English and creative writing at California College of the Arts, and she lives in the Bay Area. I am delighted to have Jasmine on. This is such a fascinating topic and a story of an incredibly inspiring woman. I know you're going to love this book, and it's a story that we don't really know in the U.S., so I'm always thrilled at how fiction can expand our perspectives and show us stories we didn't know before. So I I just know you're going to love the conversation I had with Jasmine as much as I did. Here we go with Jasmine Darsnick. Hello, hello. I am checking in to remind you that submissions are currently still open for the anthology I wrote it anyway. And I know today you're going to be particularly fired up about stories of writing it anyway, because today's book written by Jasmine Darsnick is about a trailblazing woman poet in Iran. And I can think of no better example to follow in terms of cultural oppression, obstacles, things lined up left and right to stop her from writing, and she wrote it anyway. So if you'd like to follow the incredible poet Farouk Farkside's example and tell society to shove it and write your story anyway, we would love to have your submission of an essay about writing it anyway. You can find out more details and check it out and find out how to send your submission in by March 15th, 2018 at iwroteitanyway.com. We look forward to reading your piece. Hey, Jasmine, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you, Caroline. Great to be here. So you have a novel, Song of a Captive Bird, coming out right now, which everybody can get right now. And you've, this is your first novel. And then you previously wrote a memoir that made quite a big splash. So I'm interested in your relationship to the novel and how you transformed into writing fiction from starting with memoir. Sure. Well, I didn't really have plans to write. I I really feel like that story of my family was a story that was given to me and it felt like it made me a writer. (laughs) And I learned how to write through that book. Um, I didn't think as I was writing it, I, I didn't think I'd write another memoir necessarily. I've since thought that I do have another memoir in me, but it didn't see, I don't seem 
I'm not ex- as excited about becoming a serial memoirist, you know. <laughs> Some people are wonderful. Mary Carr has produced uh, a number of books about her life and everyone is really unique and interesting. But I was, you know, I was pretty much I had pretty much told the story of my family. I've told my mother's story and I was ready to move on. And by this time I did start to think of myself as a writer and I wanted to have the freedom that fiction gives you. You're constrained, of course, with memoir, though I do have to, I have to confess, I think that it's more made up than memoirists necessarily will tell you. Uh, My memoir is my mother's story. So much of the book is made up of events that I didn't personally witness. And so recreating that was in a sense of fiction to conjure that time and that place. And even to conjure her was a kind of fiction. So it's not that different, but um, it seemed to me really exciting. I was really, uh, I was really excited by the possibility of making something up and not being constrained at all by what really happened. I think that is a fascinating challenge in terms of memoir. And there are all these tricks that you kind of start to notice as you're reading it or for anyone who's written it of, I imagine it was like this or what could have happened or or these little references or, you know, it was told that this happened. Did you find yourself having to kind of use some sleight of hand or did you just write it as you knew it from your mother and not worry about any of that? You know, I excised any kind of reference to the process. So I don't, at any point, I don't think I say, I imagine it was like that. It's written almost in the third person. Mm. And, and it was, I did have to play tricks on myself. I initially, I was calling my mom, my mother, and that just kept you know, pushing me up against a wall. Uh, I think as long as I was calling her my mother, even by her real name, as I was writing, I felt like I couldn't really tell the story fully, that I couldn't really inhabit her perspective the way that you need, the way a reader needs. And so I actually gave her a pseudonym. And that's when I think that was the trick really that clicked it on for me and let me tell a truer story in a sense, because I, I didn't feel as bound to, um, bound to reality in a sense. So it's a little perverse, but, (laughs) but it helped me, uh, it helped me really flesh out a more satisfying story. I think those tricks though, are so important because there's all of these different parts of the brain that can get turned on when you're writing. Like there's the part that wants to tell the story. And then there's the part that's worried about it being perfect. And then there's, you know, and then in your case, writing about your mother, there's the part of you that, I mean, your book is called The Good Daughter. So, (laughs) you know, you want to be a good daughter in writing her story. So I can imagine that having all of those things happening simultaneously would make it really difficult. Yeah, I definitely don't recommend writing a memoir about your parents while they're still alive, if you can avoid it. Uh, in my case, my mom was sitting on such a great story. And I think she she really, you know, was sizing me up and felt like if she told it to me, uh, she felt that I was going to write it eventually. And I think she sort of thought to herself, well, if I tell her this story now, I can have some control over it. <laughs> And, uh, and so that's a really, for an artist, that's a really difficult uh, position to be in because, you know, there's this wonderful story, but on the other hand, you do, you do sort of have someone peering over your shoulder. So it was a real challenge and I wouldn't recommend to, to, to people, um, 
you know, necessarily to enter into that kind of bargain. It was interesting. I want to reference something you said at the beginning. You just glanced over this, but saying that, you know, that story made you a writer. Mm-hmm. Now, you're someone who holds an MFA in fiction and a PhD in English. And so I wonder, you clearly have spent a lot of time studying writing and language. So what was it about needing to write that book to make you really feel that you were a writer? Because this comes up all the time of people feeling like I have to do X before I'm allowed to consider myself a writer. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I, I really had never allowed myself to, to even entertain that possibility. You know, I came from a really um, a strict immigrant family where it was discouraged. When I went to get my PhD, it was almost like I was, you know, running away with a Grateful Dead or something like that. It was, <laughs> it was, it was so shocking uh, in my family. And if they could have prevented me from from getting a PhD, they would have. So that's sort of where that was where I was coming at um, in part. And then you know the usual insecurities that you have if you. Or, you know, if you have a background in literature, you're very aware of your own shortcomings <laughs> as a writer. Uh, but, you know, the story that my mom's story was really, it was so unique. And it actually grew out of uh, my PhD dissertation, which is about which was about Iranian women writers. And as I was working on that project, I felt like there were so many really interesting stories about Iran and Iranian women that hadn't been told yet. And this was despite uh, a great number of memoirs coming out um, in the wake of 9-11. So it was really that lack. And I, I go back a lot of times in my mind to that wonderful phrase of Toni Morrison's, you have to write the book that you're looking for. I'm butchering it a bit, but um, but this, you know, this feeling in me, and it was so strong that here was a story that hadn't been told. And, um, and so I think, you know, less, less a feeling of, you know, I'm a writer now, then I'm going to put myself in service to this story. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I think you need a lot to get through a book. I mean, the engine that drives you has got to be a powerful one. It takes so long. And there's so many obstacles, um, you know, it, it's really, it's a long, hard road uh, to publish a book. And and so I think having some sort of sense of I'm doing this for something that's, you know, yes, it's about me, but it's also about something bigger than just me. That can be really a powerful engine, so to speak, to keep you going. Definitely. And then also you had such an incredible you know, chord that you struck with people that it really took off. So were you surprised by the response that you got with the book? Or did it feel like, yes, I guess everybody knew this was that great a story? Uh, no, I've never felt that way about it. I mean, just totally delighted. I'm, I'm still delighted if I get an email from a reader and they connect with the story. It's just really miraculous and wonderful. Um, you know, I think I think the reason I hear a lot from from the people who reach out to me is they it makes them think my mom the story that I wrote in The Good Daughter was a story about a family secret and in particular it was a story about how she had been married at the age of 13 and given up a child when she was 14 divorced uh, and then never saw that child again and she's the good daughter I'm not <laughs> so uh, but but you know that story as dramatic as it is, I think people could connect to that that sense in so many of our families of what you can't say, what you shouldn't say. 
I think so many people live with some kind of secret that is really painful to keep. And, and so, you know, to the small extent that reading a story like mine cracks open something in people, that's really gratifying to me as a writer. Absolutely. So you got through that whole experience and had this incredible chord that it struck with people. They responded, people are writing. And then you turned to the life of, now I'm going to butcher her name. And I really don't want you. Farouk Farouk Not bad. So Farouk Farouk And she was known, she's sort of, you know, like a queen. She's just known by her first name sort of like Prince, you know, so Iranians know her and, and, uh, right away, if you, if you ask an Iranian, they'll know her as Furu by just her first name. Amazing. So was that intimidating? So you've been taking on a story that was your mother's the first time, but then you've come <laughs> to, you know, the Furu who is known by her first name. Was it intimidating right. to come to her as a character? For sure. You know, as you speak now, I, I'm thinking, why do I do this to myself? Because, you know, <laughs> with the first book I had, you know, my mom peering over my shoulder. And, and then with the second book, I take on a woman who's really, she's one of the most famous women in Iranian history. So though Americans don't know her, or very few Americans know her, she is iconic to Iranians and so beloved that um, it certainly did, as I was writing, enter into my thinking that, if I didn't get it right, or I represented her, you know, in, in a way that didn't didn't jibe with um, with who she was, that there were going to be a lot of people who were disappointed. <laughs> and uh, but I could say that, you know, I think that made it a better book. I mean, I think that that really kept me on my toes as I was writing, um, having a sense of, you know, really wanting to honor her and and her legacy, and to produce a book that. While, you know, hopefully it's really um, engaging and, and uh, imaginative, was still tethered to the extraordinary true story of her life. Amazing. And it is an extraordinary story. I mean, I think there's so much that's tied up in the book about the experience of what it means to be a woman in a particular time and place. Um, and it was heartbreaking to read the story thinking about, you know, all the ways in which her life was restricted. I mean, as evidenced by the title, which is a great choice of title, but you know, that she's not allowed to go out by herself. She's all of these barriers that she had to get past in order to do what she wanted to do that might not have been present had she been born in a different time period. Right. And it makes her a great character. I, I don't know who said this, but you know, you really need to set up lots of obstacles for your characters, you know, and I think there's a peril when you love your character so much, you, you sort of want to protect them and <laughs> shield them from the worst. But I really didn't have to make up much um, because there was so much in her life that was dramatic. She was married young. She was, um, she was divorced. And as a consequence of that divorce, she was never able to see her child again. Uh, she's entering into a professional world at a time when women were just beginning in Iran to enter the professions. Um, and, and so she just, you know, in her life, she faced maybe what we would say are unimaginable challenges, but that's also what made her great. I mean, I think that's also 
what what built her character, what made her strong, and what gave her, in a sense, the fortitude to do what she did, which is to break totally new ground as a writer and as a woman. So in taking on somebody like Farouk, who's so iconic that the whole country knows who she is, and they have all of these investments in it, how was it to try to get inside of her head mm-hmm. and write from that perspective? How did you work with that? Well, it seems had- like a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I had to play another trick on myself. So with the first book, I tricked myself by giving my mom a pseudonym. Uh, and that was a way that I managed to get a bit closer into her perspective. And that really worked for me. So I played a similar trick here, which is that I moved from the third person, which is where I'd started writing, um, writing her as, as, uh, as a character from the outside, from the third. And then I made the decision to go into, into first and just initially I was just trying it out. You know, they say it either feels right or it doesn't. And it was a little scary. I have to say to even, you know, it's audacious, I think to say I, right. (laughs) So that's a different, it's a, it's difficult to, to, uh, to step into that and, and to even give the impression that you know somebody or you, you know, uh, you, you, you could imagine yourself into, um, a mind that is no longer alive, um, give and give voice to that. So um, it was really, it, it was really challenging. But the the switch into first person was important, and it did unlock her voice for me, and it did unlock the story for me because then I was able to really drop into her world and to saturate the story with her impressions and her feelings and 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 also to give a sense of what was happening in Iran at the moment at that time it was a really interesting time in Iranian history you're really caught between modernity and tradition between western influences and islam and so getting into that first person almost let me parachute into that world and uh, and render it in a way that hopefully is interesting to to readers for whom that world is also totally alien and unfamiliar. I think it really works. And, and something that you bring up is there is such a difference between third person and first person. And I think given Again, I keep going back to the title, but going back to the thought of a captive bird, like seeing it from inside of her perspective, I feel like the sense of enclosure is so much stronger because you can't see anything that she can't see in a first person perspective. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but, um, but it makes a lot of sense now. I mean, it gives you a lot of access in one way, but it also cuts you off, um, in an, in another. And, and I like that connection that you're making. Yeah, it's um, it it it. I hope it works, and and it um, it felt like the right choice for this story because Furuk herself had written in this really bold first person voice, so it felt consonant with that, with that incredible voice of hers in her poems, and uh, and I was able to use her poems really if I were to say what was the most important element of research in the book, it was reading her poems, going back to the poems and, and most, if not 
I would say most of her poems are written in a very distinctive, bold first person voice. And it was so helpful for me to read those and and then sort of, you know, hope that they were going to inflect the sound of my writing voice too, and, and give it the, the feel of her uh, unique personality. Do you think that you um, have access to sort of a different part of yourself as a part of, as a result of inhabiting Farouk for the time that you were uh, writing the book? Oh, she was such a fun character to write because she's so much more confident and, you know, gutsy. And, you know, she, she was a very soulful woman, but she was also really tough. She had to be, you know, I think to do what she did to go from where she started, you know, a woman, a a girl married at 15, really, you know, very, very moderate, modest education to go from there to becoming one of the most famous, most celebrated poets in Iranian history, um, you you had to be really tough. So she was so much fun uh, to to step into because she's so much more audacious than I'll ever be. (laughs) So I think it did give me access. Um, You know, I I don't think ever I'll, I'll, you know, I'll I'll ever step into, you know, quite the the confidence she had, but maybe she did rub off in, on me a little bit, you know, maybe she did give me a little bit of her magic. Yeah, I think, I mean, she's, what struck me was that she faces all of these challenges, like horrible experiences and just incredibly painful experiences, but she's not, she's not squashed by them. She's not cowed right. by it. Right. It almost seems to make her stronger, which... <laughs> I think that's true. It's so impressive. I think that's true. And I think it's true of so many people who accomplish great things is it's really, it is the trauma. It is the hardship. It is the, um, the terrible parts of their lives that often become the source of great art or, you know, tremendous personality. It's that same source. It can destroy you or it, or it can create you. And in Farul's case, all of that hardship really created, um, a really phenomenal woman. She, but she's not perfect. You know, that's something you had said earlier. And that's something I think writers can struggle with because readers sometimes are discomfited by a character who isn't totally likable, you know? So to me, Foodle is very, she, I think she's very likable, but you know, she does make some decisions that we could say were not, you know, you know, perhaps the best decisions. I think something that might not, sit well with some readers is the fact that she chose to some extent she chose to pursue her life um at the cost of of uh her her relationship with her son now there were you know all sorts of reasons why it was impossible for her um to continue that relationship and i think we could be sympathetic to that but you know possibly that's something you know with even now, I think it makes people a little uncomfortable. A woman who walks away from her marriage, and in particular her child, can can stir up all sorts of uh, in, feelings in us. Um, but I didn't want to erase that. I felt that made her more interesting. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think that is, it's really mixed, you know, the fact that those things can happen. And at the same time, like you said, because of circumstances, it made it so difficult. And then we also think, I can't help but think of, of men who've done the same thing. Sure. Um, 
in service of their creativity who don't get the same kind of level of criticism for doing that. Absolutely. I mean, that was probably, you know, the greatest taboo um, was to uh, to leave your child. Now, there weren't, women didn't have choices. That was the cost. If you were not married, if you, I mean, women actually didn't, in Iran of Furuk's time, this is the 1950s, they didn't even have a right to divorce, really. And she was only able to get a divorce with her husband's um, you know, uh, really with his permission in a sense, but that was the cost. If, if, uh, if a woman was divorced, she forfeited the right to see her children. And it's a terrible choice. You know, I think many of us would be flattened by, um, by a choice like that. Yeah, absolutely. And in some sense, I mean, her marriage, which started with a romance was, kind of torpedoed from the beginning by social constructions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel that she chose her husband, which is, you know, it was a limited choice, but I think she did choose someone that she genuinely loved, but her ambition was too great. It was not possible for her to be a wife and to be a mother at that time in that place and have any kind of autonomy or independence. Now, the fact that she went on and she wrote these really, you know, sexy poems and, and, uh, you know, politically, uh, really opinionated poems, uh, that was totally impossible. If she had written the kind of poetry that other women were writing, uh, poetry that was more polite, you know, that used a lot of metaphors that masked her identity as a as a, a woman, well, maybe she could have sustained a professional life, a, a writerly life, and and still um, stayed married. But with the kind of writing that she was doing, it wasn't long before her husband just said no, and she was presented with the choice of stop writing, you know, stop having any aspiration of of a writing life or an independent life, uh, or else that was it. Yeah. And that it wasn't even her choice. The choice to, um, that it wasn't her yeah. saying, I want to get divorced. I mean, granted the relationship was having, it was struggling, but that it wasn't her saying, I'm asking for a divorce, knowing the consequences. It's that he's dangling this threat over her. Definitely. Yeah. As I say, she wouldn't have had the legal right to divorce. In her case, I think it, all of this, the situation, the stress of it, the trauma of it led to a mental breakdown. So it's really, um, it, it's really as she's falling apart that this decision is being made for her, but also to some extent, she realizes this is, this is the only way forward that she can't stay married, uh, and continue to write, to continue to be on her own and free and independent. So I think it's the other thing about this that's so fascinating to me is that she is, you know, a a first name basis, known cultural phenomenon in Iran, um, where there is you know, such a complicated relationship with women's independence and women's 
you know, as there is everywhere, but in this particular time that she ended up becoming so famous, I think is really amazing and wonderful. So how, um, how do you think this book will be received there? How do you think people will respond to seeing her in fiction? And what do you think the relationship is to her now versus when she first came out? Oh, that's really interesting. I, I think she's still among the most revered poets. Uh, now, in her lifetime, that wasn't really the case. She had some success. She attained some degree of recognition, particularly her last two, her last book of poetry uh, was received well. But there were a lot of people who just, you know, sometimes if you talk to Iranians of a certain generation and you say, you know, you say, you mentioned Farouk, they'll say, oh, well, why are you bothering with that whore? You know, <laughs> they'll, oh, wow. they'll, they'll say, well, you know, why, why would you want to write about her? You know, so as much as she was, she is now iconic. During her lifetime, she was demonic to a lot of people. I mean, she was the worst, um, you know, sort of outcome of the incursion of Western culture. I mean, people really thought that she was an embodiment of, um, you know, a, 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 a sort of aping of American ways, Western ways, and this total perversion of of tradition and femininity on, in all of that. So, um, so in her lifetime, she really fought to be re- not not even just recognized, but you know, to, to be acknowledged as human, you know, or uh, deserving of 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 respect, not just recognition. Today, uh, I do think she's she is, as I said, one of the most important. Iranian poem poets. I think her voice is such a strong voice of resistance and passion. I, you know, people will recite her poems with just you know such emotion. So if they're not if they're not of the mind that why are you writing about this whore? <laughs> you know, there there there's so many people that I've encountered when I've said I'm writing her 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 story that they'll immediately launch into. Uh, you know, one of their favorite poems of hers. So she has a tremendous following in Iran as well. Her grave site is, uh, is a, is a site of pilgrimage every year on the anniversary of her death, which is the 14th of February. She died in 1967. People flock to her grave site still. When there were the protests in 2009, there were huge street protests in Iran in 2009, people held up posters with verses of her poems written on them. Uh, and, and so I think she still has so much, um, so much, uh, passionate, uh, passionate influence on people. And, uh, and she is in a sense though, she, she's writing it, different moment, the same questions of freedom, of democracy, of women's rights. I mean, all of those are, of course, the same questions that are bedeviling the Iran of today now. So it's not at all surprising to me that of all the poets, Iranians have uh, have really seized her verses, um, not only hers, but she's really one of, one of still the most powerful voices yeah, I can. I mean, I can see that in her example that she would be such a huge source of inspiration. 
Yeah, I, I think that she is the tragedy of her life too. I think when when you think of her, she was the ultimate promise. Yeah, and I think in some ways her death was the death of a certain vision, of a certain way forward for Iranian women. There's no question in my mind, had she lived uh, until the revolution or through the revolution, she would have been executed very early on, I think. I think she was that kind of person who would not have stayed quiet, you know. And so um, and so she's, she's really, um, she's, she's really tremendously honored for her boldness though she never lived through the revolution i think the tragedy is that this is the kind of woman exactly the kind of woman who who had to be squashed from the point of view of the regime you know that this kind of woman was a woman that would not be allowed to live as she lived um anymore and uh and and uh, it's, it's a tremendous loss, you know, when you look at her, it's also, I think, in a sense, the embodiment of this greater loss that the country suffered. Yeah, I mean, if she was able to accomplish as much as she did by 32, who knows what she would, might have done by 90. Yeah, you know, and I think it's a little bit like, I think it's, it's a bit like the place that Sylvia Plath has in many people's imaginations, you know, that she, she too had died so young and we are, we are faced with this, you know, terrible question of how much more she could have done, you know, and uh, who might she have become. And I think for likewise, you know, you're, you're sort of tortured by the thought of all she could have done if she had been given a life that was longer. Yeah. It's, I think that's, then you get into this question of like chicken or the egg in certain circumstances, like if their lives had been made easier by social circumstances, how that would have changed things? Or was it the fact that their circumstances were so difficult for them that it made them right the way they did? And I guess there's really no way to know. Absolutely. I mean, I think a tremendous foe, the the foe that was Iranian taboo, Iranian culture of the 1950s and 1960s is the foe that gives her her fire too. Uh, and so you think if that fire wasn't there, would she have created uh, what she did, what she did? I think she would have been a remarkable artist anyway, but that fire might have been a little dimmer. Or maybe there would have been less urgency. Ah, and that's, you know, as a, as a writer, I, I think that's tremendous. You know, this feeling she had of, I have to write this, I have to write this. It's so vital. I think, you know, those circumstances are to me unimaginable, but I think that sense of, I have to write this, not just that I want to, is absolutely essential to you, uh, as, as you, um, as you, right. You really need that kind of conviction. Definitely. I mean, it reminds me of something you said earlier that in a sense, you know, on a, on a lesser scale, going off and getting a PhD in literature (laughs) was like running off and joining the Grateful Dead. So in some ways you were undergoing your own rebellion by, by coming to writing. Do you think that helped you 
kind of in writing about a character who is such a rebel herself. Oh, definitely. And you know, what is right, writing is power. And I think that's why we're so, we get so anxious about it, you know, because to say I'm a writer is to really claim power. Giving voice to something is something so, uh, it's so empowering or disempowering. If you don't have a voice, um, that's terrible. That's, you know, such such a, such a crippling feeling to, to not feel that you can express yourself. And I think that, you know, as small as that, it, it's, it seems, you know, absurd, you know, next to Furu's story and all the challenges she faced. But, you know, when my, when my family discouraged me from writing, it was coming from the same place. I mean, it was really coming from, don't tell people, you know, you don't, you don't want anyone to know, you know, what you really think. That's, it's so deep and, and, and so strong with the Iranians, you know, this, the sense of sort of, you know, keeping things quiet, being private, not letting people know, you know, the messier parts about your life. And so I'd never say that my circumstances are in any way, uh, you know, similar to hers, but it's coming from just exactly the same place. You know, that place that says women should not give voice, even if they have the voice, you shouldn't give voice to those messy or uncomfortable or ugly parts of your life. Right. So you just went straight for the memoir to get that (laughs) out of there. And then you could write the novel and that didn't seem like such a big deal. Yeah. uh, You know, I think that that first book was as much as it made me a writer, surviving it, (laughs) you know, really opened up um, all sorts of possibilities for me. I mean, writing under those circumstances with, you know, my mother alive and so invested in the story I was writing. I mean, in some ways, I don't think it's ever going to be as hard as that. It's hard writing about Farouk, but, you know, I have to confess it was it was a lot harder writing a family memoir, definitely a lot harder uh, in, in, to write that. Um, and and so I think, you know, that that's opened up all kinds of possibilities for me. I think now I can um, continue to, to challenge myself because I did, I did do this one thing that felt totally impossible to me. That's awesome. So you're about to embark, you know, on this whole process of promoting and talking about song of a captive bird. Do you have another story lingering in the background or are you completely immersed in, in putting the book out there and some other idea will, will percolate and come up later? You know, I worked on Song of a Captive Bird for five, five, six years. I was teaching as well. And, you know, there were many, many interruptions. But, um, but when I, when I sold the book, it was nearly done. And I started working seriously on it. I got into a groove, I really picked up momentum. And that became addicting. When I came to the end, then when the book was all finished, I didn't want to lose that. And so I started writing right away. I, I went off right away and I started researching. Uh, and there's this strange interval of time between when your book's done and it comes out. It's a long interval. In my case, it's something like 16 months uh, between when the book was done and, and when, it, um, when, it, it, when it comes out. And that's a great time to work on another project because you can't, you know, you really can't you can't really promote the book yet, um, but you, you've just finished a project and you've, um, and you've, you're sort of in great shape 
uh, creatively or artistically because you've been working your muscles. And, um, and so I kept going and, and I've, um, thankfully I've had a project that has, uh, become really exciting. And, and now I feel like I want to talk about that book. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. At some point, you know, I, I'll, I need to sit down and read Song of the Captive Bird again to remember, uh, to remember all that's in there because I've spent the last year in a really, really different place with a very different character. Um, and so I sort of have to, to work myself back into the frame of mind and get into that, that mode of, of now talking about a book. But, you know, it's a little bit like bands, you know, who feel, you know, that, they have to keep playing that song, you know, and maybe they're working on something that they're really a lot more excited about. So, uh, so, so I'm, ex- I'm so excited to go out with, uh, with song of a captive bird, but I have to, um, I have to sort of break a spell that I managed to conjure for myself, uh, with, with the third book and a different project. Well, it's exciting to hear that there is one in play and this does seem to be something that happens is that, you know, you'd think you'd be like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. I need a break. But that the process of getting into a new world or a new story is the thing that seems to entice people when they finish something else. And as you said, like you get your muscles all warmed up, you're writing, you're going, it feels good and you don't want to stop. Yeah. And and you miss the character that you've just given away, right? So I missed Furul a lot and I wanted... I wanted someone else. Um, and, and so I feel really lucky that I found someone else. And, um, and that's really, you know, that's what it's all about. I think, you know, it's wonderful publication is it's, it's such a, I'm, I feel so lucky, um, to, to publish this book, but the writing itself is, is really, uh, it's going to be so cliche, but it is, that's really what it's about. And, um, and so you want to keep going. You want to keep challenging yourself. You want to keep um, you want to keep enchanting yourself. I mean, reality feels really a lot of the time really tedious to me, <laughs> and, I, and I want to escape back into a story of my own making. Understandable. And I think that you know when you have stories that are about culture changing, transforming, you know, and especially when you have something that's a narrative that's known so well in one country and not known at all in another. That's, I think, an amazing mix in in the case of Farouk. I imagine you're really excited to release the book and have Farouk sort of introduced to the US where she isn't known nearly as well as she is in Iran. Oh, it's so exciting. And I think her story will really resonate. I think people will be very surprised that a woman like Furul existed in Iran. I mean, we, we have such very uh, limited ideas of who Iranians and who Iranian women are. And so I think it's really going to be exciting to people to discover a woman like Furul who in so many ways, um, defied, uh, expectations and created herself and made a really extraordinary life. So it's, um, it's really exciting to, to offer that kind of story at a moment where I think we really need that. I think we really need stories that complicate and expand our idea of, uh, of Iranian women, of women in the Middle East, of, of, of women in places that are, other than ours. Absolutely. Well, I'm so grateful um, that we got to have this conversation. And 
I know everyone will enjoy the book and I'm just so glad you were able to come on. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you so much, Caroline. This has been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.